Hello and welcome to Pop Country Deprived Revisits Returns Goes Back Tries Again to an Old Film. We are revisiting the very first podcast we recorded together. Yes. It oh my god, it was. Episode two, right. but it's the first one we recorded. Three and a bit years ago. Um when we were trying to start this thing, when you were trying to start this thing, and I was a guest. You were a guest, yes. I was a guest coming on. And it turns out scripting basically everything I was saying. As was I. If you look at our outlines from those days. (laughs) Yeah, I'd forgotten that we did that, that we wrote this like four page long document with all sorts of extra stuff that we put in. We were nervous and newbies and didn't know what we wanted to say. (laughs) I, I feel like having watched it again... And then having listened to our podcast about it again, I kind of want to talk about the podcast more. I'm okay with that. The, the film is what it is. And I don't think, I, I, like everything I say on the podcast about it doesn't actually bear repeated watchings when you know how the structure fits together. I think the structure adds some interest to a film that is not necessarily as interesting as it could be. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, did did anything hit you this time watching it back and going like, oh yeah, no, cool, I noticed this better or... No, see, here's the funny thing. So I watched the movie, I rewatched the movie first, and then mm-hmm. I re-listened to our podcast episode about it. Okay. My opinions and perspective of the movie did not change one bit oh, really? between the two viewings. I was surprised. I really thought it would. In fact, if anything, I was more generous in mm. our podcast episode about it than I was this watching. Right. I did enjoy John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson because I think it's impossible not to enjoy them when they're on screen together, but... Okay. The rest of the movie, I just don't get. I'm never going to get. And I think it's just because it's a day in the life of characters I don't relate to. And I specifically said that. And our, like that's one of the very wonderfully, I don't know, insightful things that I said in our very first podcast episode together. And Absolutely. I still believe that's true. So One of the massively insightful things that you said over what sounds like we're speaking through a, a, a stack of paper. Oh my god. That's hissing at us. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. Like we were really good at this. People were complimenting us on starting, like, hey, you guys have done really good quality on your first things. We listen to it now. Like, no. It's like listening to a vinyl record that's been stood on. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so bad. I remember like when we started, I was so proud of our show because I thought our mm. quality was good, our standards were good, everything that we did was fantastic. And now I listen back and it, I just cringed the whole way through it. <laughs> but I, we were so excited. We were. We were. And, and we do properly get into it. There is, there is you know, a, a period of time there you'll listen to us and we're clearly just reading out what we've written to prep ourselves, yes. <laughs> which is fine. It, we were new to this. It's all okay. Um, and then we clearly get into it. I think the way we edit has changed a lot. That might oh, be the yes. main thing. Because... Like, editing used to take ages. Mm-hmm. It used to take a really long time to go through and, and, and get an episode down to sounding as good as it did. Except, what the heck was edited out of this, given what's left in there? There's us talking over each other. There's us, like, stuttering through sentences. But there are clearly several places where I edited out, like, ums and, like, long pauses. Oh, really? Because then okay. you can hear, like... There should be a natural pause and it's not there. So, like, the sentence just kind of skips. Like, I heard that listening back. Like, I was way too heavy-handed on the cutting. Right. 
It was our first episode. I mean, for what it was, it was really good. Oh, absolutely. I, I maintain just, that. Yeah. It's just kind of painful to go back and listen to baby podcasters, Matthew and Mandy. Oh, crack it. It was so surprising to listen to and go, wow, this is a lot more different than I thought it was. It's interesting to see how we've evolved as podcasters, as friends, and as two people who feed off of each other in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Because now, Mm -hmm. anybody who's a guest on our show now, our outlines are very, very bare bones. Like, half the time, we just have a few lines, and we still manage to talk for an hour. And we just do it because we're having a conversation, and you know what to say to get me to talk, and I sometimes know what to say to punch your buttons and get you to talk. (laughs) And back then, we just didn't know. We had to write everything down because we had just met. Literally, we had just met. And that was probably the first time we ever spoke like voice to voice. Possibly. But, but yeah, maybe the second time, but the first time recording together. No, it yeah. might even have been the first time. Yeah. I think it really was I, the first time. And I, I think you're absolutely right that yes, it's the fact we're friends now that mm-hmm. makes the difference that we're so comfortable in talking to each other. So like you can hear it how we were like, oh, no, oh, no, you go. No, you go ahead. Yes. So <laughs> I've, I've got this paragraph that I'm going to read out and then we'll go into your paragraph that you can read out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the thing as well, because I start so low energy as well. Like, well, hello, I'm I'm Matthew and I like pop culture. And <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give you three facts about myself. One of them is a lie and you can all try and guess who what it is. And, you know, we're doing a nice icebreaker hit together. <laughs> oh, so this is what this is vintage PCD. Is that what we're doing today? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like, see where we came from. <laughs> OK, question for you. Should we have released this? <laughs> Should we have done this test and then just done it again later? <laughs> Oh my goodness! I mean, no, because all—I mean, all of our early episodes were like that. Okay, oh, God, I, I think they really were. We? <laughs> um, I think the Die Hard episode, which we released first, was better because right. it wasn't the first one we recorded together. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And so I actually think releasing these out of order was the right call mm-hmm. because getting people in on the Die Hard one and then having them come to this one was better, right? Get them in I, on a high note. Oh, we hope so. <laughs> I still love the Die Hard episode. I do. It's okay. not quite. It's very similar to this one, but it felt like it was more high energy. Like I think you and I were just more comfortable with each other having done it once. Right, that's fair. And I think that Ooh. came across. <laughs> I almost. I have to tell you. I have to be honest. When I was re-listening to this episode last week, my first instinct was we should not do this as a PCD revisited because I don't want to re-release this episode and have people <laughs> listen to it again. But then I thought, no, I'm proud of where we came from, and it's really great to see how much we've grown. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so if you listen back to this now, and especially if you didn't listen to it at the time, or you haven't listened to it in a very long time, if you know us very well, tell us what you think. Should we have released this? Should we have re-recorded it? Um, what stands out from Baby Podcaster Matthew and Mandy? that you want to comment on. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing, hashtag PC Deprived. I'm at Matthew Bose. And I am on Twitter at Mandy K. And we really, really hope you enjoy this episode and at the very least are as entertained by it as we were when we re-listened. <laughs> enjoy Pop Fiction, Pop Culture Deprived, episode two.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode two of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're discussing Pulp Fiction on your Say What Again podcast. My co-host today is Matthew Vos. Matthew and I met through the StoryWonk Discord chat server, and the rest is podcast history. Matthew, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I am a pop culture reference junkie. I'm the guy who read Voltaire's Condide when it was mentioned in a Bloodhound Gang song. I then read Dante's Inferno when that was referenced in Condide. Uh, I saw Pulp Fiction in my early teens when it first came out, um, and that's probably the best situation to be in when uh, watching a Tarantino film with its stylized coolness. I finally saw it all the way through when it was reduced in a store, and I was too young to buy it, so I coerced my sister into picking it up for me. Um, it's probably the first time that I realized you could tell stories in a, a non-linear fashion, and that you could bring elements back into play during another part of the film. So it really was a, a watershed moment for me to understand how films could be put together and how to craft stories in, in such an interesting way. Yeah, the, the non-linear part of it was actually really interesting to me because I, I went into this movie completely blind when I watched it last night. I didn't even Google anything about Quentin Tarantino or even when it was released because I just didn't want to know anything about it. And after I started it, I texted a friend to let him know that I was going to kind of not be paying attention to anything but the movie <laughs> so that I could really take notes. And, um, of course, he spoiled the fact that it was non-linear for me. And I was about 40 minutes oh. into the movie at that point, and I hadn't realized that there was anything amiss. I, I had no idea. And, um, of course, he told me what to look for, Christopher Walken and the pocket watch, or I guess it was a wristwatch. I still wouldn't have realized it was non-linear at that point, and I didn't actually get it until the scene with Butch waking up from his nightmare right before he goes to fight that's the first moment and and that's well like halfway through the movie i think before i figured out that that we weren't being told a story from start to finish and it was weird (laughs) (laughs) yes it's definitely an an interesting way to go into a film completely blind like that and to have to uh see what you can make of the jigsaw puzzle as you go through Right. Well, I I hate spoilers. I am one of those people who I'm very dogged about it, and I will avoid them at all costs. So even a movie that came out, you know, in 1994, wow, that was a really long time ago. (laughs) I managed to stay spoiler-free. I had no idea what it was about. I knew who was in it. Well, I knew some of who was in it. I didn't know Christopher Walken was in it, but I knew that it was starring John Travolta's hair. And uh, found out also in the first scene, well, I guess the second scene after the diner prologue, that it was also starring Samuel L. Jackson's hair. And that was, you know, pretty interesting to me. I focused on that probably way too much while I was watching. Yeah, and and the cast, the whole ensemble, is it's just fascinating who they got together for it. So many of them weren't, they weren't known at this point. This was their sort of big breakthrough that they then went on and became major major stars from Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Bing Rames and Tim Roth. They'd all done things in di- and different countries and on TV, but this was the big moment for them. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I know I I sent you my my funny thoughts. Um I kind of wanted to live tweet this and and couldn't because I knew I was podcasting about it today, so I just wrote them all down and I'll link to those in the show notes, but I was very distracted by trying to figure out who some of the people were at first. Tim Roth, for example, I knew I recognized his face. I could not figure out who he was. And for some reason, in my brain, I was equating him with Simon Pegg, which is 
weird because they're not remotely close to the same person. And then when the credits came on, I figured out who he was. I didn't happen to notice Ving Rhames in the credits. And when they just showed the back of his head for the first several shots of, of Marcellus in the movie, I was sitting there thinking, wow, that really looks like the back of Ving Rhames' head. And it turned out I was right. Bang on. Well done. <laughs> yeah, apparently I know what the back of people's heads look like, even though I have to tell you, I was really, really distracted by the filming of this movie because they did show so many shots of the back of people's heads. And it it bothered me just because it's so unusual and different. I'm used to when people are talking and having a conversation, seeing their face in the movie. And instead, frequently, we got to see the shot from behind their head and it it was just distracting and kind of drove me a little bit crazy yes it, it's heavily stylized in the filming the cinematographer Andrej Sekula he actually did Hackers and American Psycho which I think are, are very similar to this it's it's staring in at lots of different activity happening but you're not necessarily part of it and uh, so it's, it's a an interesting way to do it there's a great shot in Pulp Fiction that I love when Butch goes to get his watch and it follows him for probably a couple of minutes going through fences and, and uh, uh, through a garden and people's backyards. And there's even a bit where the camera goes through a fence with him. So it's, it's following him through somewhere you wouldn't normally take a, a, a camera on of a movie film. Right. Um, it, well, it's interesting that you mentioned those, those other two movies because they are also movies I have not seen. Oh. <laughs> but I'm sure that doesn't surprise you at this point. No, and I think they should be going straight on the list. Um, I will take note of that. That list is getting ever longer. Before we keep having our conversation, I want to go over a kind of a history of the movie, because I'm certain there are folks out there listening to this who are like me and have not yet seen the movie, although I guess I joined the ranks of those who have seen it since last night. Pulp Fiction was Quentin Tarantino's second feature film and was released in the United States on October 14th in 1994. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won Best Original Screenplay. Now, arguably, it only won Original Screenplay because Forrest Gump was an adapted screenplay, whereas Forrest Gump won pretty much every other category that Pulp Fiction was nominated for. Um, Tarantino himself, when, when he accepted the award, he said he thought that was the only category he'd win. And how right he was. Well, I have to admit, I much prefer the movie Forrest Gump to Pulp Fiction. <laughs> so I'm not really surprised there. No. So. A critical and commercial success, Pulp Fiction had been considered one of the best written films of all time. It had a budget of only $8 million and grossed $213 million at the box office. Now, it's a bit more difficult to explain what the movie is actually about, even after having seen it. Officially, it's a series of intersecting, chronologically nonlinear stories told from the perspectives of three characters who all have ties to mob man Marcellus Wallace. My unofficial synopsis is that it's a day in the life of thugs and how they intersect. I actually sent that synopsis to a friend last night, and I actually think it offended him a little bit because he <laughs> loves the movie so much. But when you look through my 97 or 98 thoughts I had while watching the movie, many, many of them are, what is this movie actually about? Because I I don't get it. I just, I really don't. There are essays out there about pop fiction, about how it's about nihilism and the lack of direction in America and... The, the underbelly and people who, who don't partake in society and all of this. 
you, you might be bang on right that it's not about anything. It is just days in the lives. And, you know, that that's perfectly a, a good story for a movie. And I'll even admit there are several, like, B-list movies out there that really aren't about anything, and I just happen to enjoy them. But it's because they're a day in the life of people I relate to. And Pulp Fiction was a day in the life of people that I have no, like, no basis of understanding why their lives are the way they are. No. And, and there's no emotional connection to anyone in the film. There's no reward for really getting behind people. Right. Although I did enjoy the cast. I mean, as you said earlier, it, it is a phenomenal cast, the, the folks that were in it. And I, I did appreciate watching them be really weird. That was entertaining. <laughs> I can say that. It was entertaining. So... I never watched this movie before now because when this movie came out, I was only 12. My parents weren't going to let me watch this movie that was about, you know, murder and drugs and mobs and crazy stuff. And as I got older, it was just one of those things that never really seemed to appeal to me. I really didn't know what the movie was about. I still don't really know what the movie's about. (laughs) I just knew that it was a Tarantino film and that it was wildly popular and Honestly, I've never really been a fan of Quentin Tarantino. I've always thought he was weird and that his movies were weirder. And it's interesting you saying your your parents weren't about to let you watch it. I, I could remember my mum not being happy that I'd bought that video. Or certainly I, I got my sister to buy me the video. Uh, I spoke to her earlier about this and she asked me not to shame her on the podcast about it. But I, I also, you know, why this one in particular? Why not some of the other sort of more mature films that I'd seen? And for her, it's particularly, it was the graphic nature of some of that violence, um, the drug overdose and the rape scene in particular. Those stood out because although, you know, even as a, as a child, I could differentiate between, you know, cartoon film violence and, and violence in the real world. That's so graphic and realistic. Um, she wasn't sure about me watching that. And, and then there's the fact that there is a, a very detailed description on uh, how to take heroin, which is, was, was less of a worry in my little uh, English suburb. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I think, I think the, my perspective on, on those particular things is different just because I'm in my 30s now and, and I've just watched it. So I have to be honest, the way the rape scene was shot didn't really bother me. It, it wasn't a visceral, graphically realistic shot to me as it probably was for folks back in 1994 but the OD scene with Mia was very graphic and horrifying to me I think that one was probably the only one that that really got that kind of visceral reaction from me I actually laughed when Vincent accidentally shot the kid uh, was his name Marvin in the <laughs> yes. car yep. Yes, I, I actually laughed there and I, I probably <laughs> laughed uh, when when Jules shot Brad, Brett, I couldn't quite figure out what his name was because he pronounced it differently every time. Yes, I think. So I might just be a cold-hearted person who laughs at other people's <laughs> misfortune in movies, but they didn't – they were set up to be more humorous, I think, yes. than actual like visceral reality. And so yes. it just – now I, I see it completely differently than folks probably saw it in 1994. Yes, you're dead right. The, the moment in the car is definitely supposed to be a comedic moment. I, I remember it being on a, uh, a a clip show or an end of year show, I think, as you know, moments in cinema, and that was definitely meant to be something you laughed at, for better oh, or worse. And they succeeded because yeah. I did. 
I even laughed when Vincent died, and I was shocked that Vincent <laughs> died. My train of thought during that whole scene was mostly I was speaking out loud to Butch because I thought he was making some really poor life choices in that moment. But then Vincent got shot on the toilet, and I just started laughing. So <laughs> I feel like maybe I'm a more terrible human being than I thought I was. <laughs> Those are not bad life decisions Butch makes. He needs breakfast. He's been driving a long time. He's had a whole anger thing, so he needs to come down. He needs the sugar of the fake Pop-Tarts. <laughs> okay, but he knew... He knew that Marcellus was going to have people staking out his apartment, and he got what he came for, and instead of turning around and leaving, he decided to go find Pop-Tarts. And then he couldn't even eat them cold. He had to put them in the toaster. (laughs) So those are poor life choices, I think, Uh, especially once he realized that there was a giant gun laying on his counter, and instead of getting out of there, he picks it up. (laughs) Of course, he won. Uh, but that that whole scene, I, I was um, definitely berating him for those poor life choices because I would have made very, very different ones. So you didn't see Pulp Fiction when it came out. You didn't see it in any time in the last oof, 20 years. Um, but you, you've also said uh, you're not a huge fan of Tarantino. Uh, what's your experience of his other movies? I'll be honest with you, I had to go and Google Quentin Tarantino before we got on this podcast today so I could actually see what his other movies actually were. I know I've seen Kill Bill, okay. and I think that might be the only other one I've ever seen. His his filmography is huge, but I was scrolling through the list, and Kill Bill was the only one that jumped out at me as being a movie that I saw. And the only reason I saw that one was because it had Uma Thurman with swords and watching a woman be a badass is something that I am wholeheartedly for. And most of his other filmography has just been, you know, shoot 'em up movies. And I've, when I was a kid, especially, or, you know, teenager, college age, I was never really a fan of action movies. And I always veered more towards romantic comedies and mysteries and Disney movies. So Quentin Tarantino is definitely not in my wheelhouse. Okay. And, and Kill Bill is a great film, so it's, it's good you've seen that at least. And, and that's uh, the other one of his films particularly that has this non-linear fashion. So do you remember anything from when you watched it in uh, Kill Bill that stood out for you in, in sort of piecing it together as you watched? The only thing that I remember about Kill Bill was that I was really frustrated that they shot the really gory, bloody scene in black and white. It irritated me that they did that. And that is honestly the only thing I remember about that movie. <laughs> well, some, some insider knowledge from that one then. Um, that was, I believe, to get it through the ratings. Because then he wanted it downgraded to whatever the final rating was. So we changed the very bloody scene to black and white. And the censors allowed it. Which just doesn't make sense to me. But I'm not in the movie business. So <laughs> who knows? So... And this is a, another great film to talk about in pop, pop culture terms. Um, all the way through the film, there's these references to pop culture that a lot of films didn't do before this. Um, and it doesn't really care if you get them. There's some really obscure throwaway lines. Jules uses things like Flock of Seagulls, Came from Kung Fu and the Fonz. And it's, it's like a progenitor of the way that Family Guy, Community, the, the modern MCU use lines like this to deliver a punchline or explain something away by comparing it to another franchise. 
Pulp Fiction itself became its own pop culture reference. There's like a, a lot in the world that we use as a, a throwaway line to something from this. So are there any references that you now understand having seen it? I honestly don't think so because I wasn't aware of anything that came from Pulp, Pulp Fiction before I watched it. Actually, you know what? That's not true because last night when I told my Facebook friends I was going to watch Pulp Fiction for the first time, the very first comment on the post was, now I really want a Royale with cheese. <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. I'd never heard the term before. And of course, now I think it's a silly, fun little thing. But other than that, um, most of the pop culture stuff that was present in the movie, I actually was familiar with. Or if I wasn't, it went right over my head. I know who Kane from Kung Fu is, shockingly enough. I do know who the Fonz is. There was a line um, that I think you reference in our notes later, the guns of the Navarone, that I was not aware of, and I had to Google that once I saw your, your note about it. But I think I probably just have never really paid attention to things that people have said that would have come from the movie that I finally saw in the movie last night. Because I think in my circle, people don't reference pop pulp fiction very often that's that's quite interesting there's there's a lot in the uk that seems to come from it his wallet is a, an item you can buy on store shelves and I, I have friends who have bought it winston wolf harvey Keitel, is actually in an insurance company's adverts as this gangster who goes and helps them resolve a problem when they've had a, a break-in or a car accident or something oh oh that's that's pretty neat but yeah, I, I would have had no idea. <laughs> and, and like you say, Royale with cheese is one that does crop up from everyone. I, you see it on a menu quite often, a, a Royale with something or a something with cheese as a, a throwaway line to it. Hmm. So, let's get into the film a bit. We've mentioned the, the non-linear structure. Did it do anything for you in, in how you enjoyed the film when you came away from it? Did, did it make it better, make it worse? I think... If I ever rewatch the movie, it'll make it better. I was distracted by part of it because uh, the couple at the beginning in the diner, I don't remember their names, Yolanda and I, did they ever say what his name was? Uh, I don't think we know his name. He is referred to as Honey Bunny. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> Honey Bunny and, and Yolanda, I, I was distracted the whole movie because they never showed up again. And I kept trying to figure out who they were and how they related to everything else I was watching. And of course, I, I had that big epiphany moment at the end when I realized that Vincent and Jules were in that diner. And I realized, oh, well, this is how it ties together. But it was a distraction, especially since at the beginning, I didn't realize it was nonlinear. And even when I did figure out it was nonlinear, I didn't know that that was a prologue. I I thought that everything had been linear except for Butch's flashback. And so it just, I think, was distracting to me. But if I went back and rewatched it now, understanding the order that everything actually happened, I would probably appreciate it a little more. Yes, and I think I described it like a, a jigsaw puzzle earlier. And there is something in that where the first time you do a jigsaw, you put it together and you're, you're spending time working out the puzzle. And that's your first watch through of this film. The second time you take it in for what it is, so you, you get to appreciate it and go, ah, I can see, oh, there's that line about their clothes and suddenly they're wearing something different. But I'm not so sure there's much in it for a third or a fourth watch, like you wouldn't return to a jigsaw puzzle immediately. 
you'd want to go back to it after a few years when you, uh, you, you've forgotten how all the pieces fit together. Right, right. I feel my most recent experience with, with nonlinear storytelling was the, the recent show on HBO Westworld. Have you mm -hmm. seen that at all? I have, yes. So that one, I think the nonlinear storytelling in, in that show made a lot more sense to me than what I saw in Pulp Fiction, even though I think they were really trying to do the same thing. And it may just be I was more invested in the characters of Westworld than I was in Pulp Fiction, partly because Pulp Fiction is just two hours and Westworld I had, you know, 10 or 12 episodes to get through. But I, I do think nonlinear structures can be very entertaining. They they can add a lot to the story. I'm actually dying to go back and rewatch Westworld so that I can catch all the things I missed the first time, not understanding that it wasn't linear to begin with. Yes, we're, we're in exactly the same situation that now we've just seen the last one. We want to go back and see what we missed all the way through. Well, I'm really glad I didn't spoil anything for you there. Um, <laughs> and hope I haven't horribly spoiled any of the listeners who have also watched that show or who are in the middle of watching it. Though I will say I figured out it was nonlinear fairly early on because I got really confused about something. And that was the only possible explanation. I kind of wish that had happened in Pulp Fiction. And then I probably would have been a little more aware of the various storylines intersecting instead of just assuming that the flashback was the only nonlinear piece. Yes, and, and like you're saying, you've only got a couple of hours with it. So the little hints that there are things out of order here are so easy to go over. So do you think that having it told out of order like this, did it help the film? Would it have been a better film if it was in told straight in, in the normal order and the only thing out of sequence was the flashback in Bruce Willis's dream? That's a really good question. And I don't I don't know that I have a good answer for that from my perspective just because I'm not super excited about the movie in the first place. Mm -hmm. As someone who is still digesting and processing the movie and trying to figure out what the point of the movie was, I think... If it had been told in a linear fashion, it probably would have been far less interesting because I wouldn't have been questioning things all over the place, wondering, well, why are they doing this? And, and why is Vincent wearing that? And wait, Vincent's dead, but he's back in this scene. And so I spent a lot of time just trying to make sense of the movie, and I think that contributed to my entertainment of the movie okay. instead of just being bored at watching a day in the life of people I don't care about. <laughs> and and I, I feel it had it been told linearly, that's what I would have gotten and I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it at all. Do you, from your memory of watching it last night, what do you think would have been the ending if it was told straight? I'm, I think the ending, if we're not adding anything from what was already in the movie probably would have been Butch and Fabian riding off into the sunset on the motorcycle. Yes. I think. Absolutely. Yes. And it's it's a, a, such a traditional Hollywood ending at that point. And that's not what Tarantino seemed to want to do. The ending, as, as we get, is Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta, looking cool as hell, tucking their guns into their shorts. <laughs> 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 I laughed so hard at that scene. I actually had yeah. to rewind it because I, I caught that they did something, but I was also taking notes. And so when they walked, they turned around and walked out of the door and then it cut to credits. 
I felt like I had just missed something. So I had to rewind that those last 20 seconds and rewatch. And then I just started laughing. And then my very next reaction was, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was over. That is two and a half hours of your life. (laughs) That, that was absolutely two and a half hours of my life. I didn't realize it was two and a half hours when I first started watching it. And after about an hour, I wanted to see how much time I had left. And that's when I realized that I still had another hour and a half to go. Yeah, but I I did. I got through it. I watched it all. And I was, you know, serious about it. I I wanted to watch it. I was trying to pay attention. I didn't want to be distracted because I wanted to actually be able to have a a fairly interesting conversation with you because I know that you're a fan. And I didn't want to come into this just telling you that I hate this movie that you love. (laughs) Though, Though I really don't hate it. That's that's too strong. No, and that is a good segue into to what you take away from it. The the ending as as presented is one of the things that really intrigues me about it because when I, you know, engage all my faculties and really think about it, the point of that ending is that Samuel L. Jackson is going off to to wander the earth like Kanan Kung Fu. He has heeded a message from the Lord and he has decided to uh, go and commit his life to something else. John Travolta's learnt nothing. He's still eating bacon and he is going to be killed in about 24 hours. Okay, well, uh, well, I have a question for you about that, though. So this scene happened right before they showed up to Marcellus's to give him the case, and that's yes. where we first met Butch. Yes. So in, in that particular scene, I got no indication from Jules that he was actually going to retire, or did I miss something? No, that you're right. That's not hinted at. Um, he's the one who goes over to speak to Marcellus first, so... Maybe we can infer he has that conversation at that point. But definitely he's not around when you see the uh, postscript to Butch's fight and, and the anger of Marcellus. He is not in that room. Mia is there and John Travolta and I think the bartender turned opposite together. Okay. Yeah, I think I just, I assumed that after, so Jules had that epiphany before the whole robbery thing. Yes. And so I think I just assumed that after he dealt with the the robbers and, and got his wallet back and they walked out with their guns that they were walking out as a team and he was going to go back to his life and this whole walking around like Kane from Kung Fu wasn't going to happen. But it's possible I grossly misinterpreted his his whole uh, dissection of the uh, scripture that he'd never thought about before, um, that's where I take away that he's doing something different. He he calls himself the tyranny of evil men. And right. that's the best description for him and uh, Vincent, John Travolta, because right. they are doing whatever Marcellus tells them to do. They are the tyranny of what seems to be quite an evil man. Agreed. And I think that's probably why I came out of that scene feeling that he was no longer going to retire because he came to the epiphany while dissecting that scripture that he was the tyranny of evil men. And so I think I felt like he was just accepting that and was going back to doing whatever Marcellus told him. <laughs> but he's trying, Ringo. He's trying real hard to be the shepherd. He, he was trying because he did leave him alive. He did. He did. And I guess it is, you know... The the later the later scene chronologically in Butch's apartment, Jules wasn't there. It was just Vincent. Yes, and and Marcellus himself going out for coffee and donuts, <laughs> and right. waiting to walk at, at the red red signal. <laughs> right, 
I I laughed at that. You know that whole scene from beginning to end was just ridiculous. I'm not sure I can even find another word other than ridiculous. Marcellus doing that slow double take as he's walking across the street and then Butch running him over and then crashing his own car. Yes. I was just, my first thought was, does anybody in this movie stay alive? Because Vincent had already died at that point. And so I was thinking that they both had just died and clearly they didn't, but then it just kept getting more and more farcical as Butch was trying to kill Marcellus and Marcellus was chasing him and they end up in this, I guess, pawn shop sort of place that it just went into a really weird, weird thing. And it was weird is my word to describe this movie. And you're right. It just escalates how strange it is. You know, he has to wait for Zed. Zed comes up and he's a security officer, a police officer, something. Then there's a gimp as well. It's all very strange. And then Bruce Willis gets free. Yeah, I I was kind of distracted through part of that scene because Zed is, if I'm not mistaken, is Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Am am I mistaken on that? I'm I'm looking it up. You might be absolutely right. Um, Where is he? Because I feel like I was just picturing him dancing around in a suit made out of skin. And so I was just distracted but i i do that i equate actors with their characters and so when i see them in another role especially if it's a role that i'm not invested in i stay distracted because of how i feel they should be versus what they're doing on the screen at that moment the only thing i've seen him in is that he's the uh villain from the mask i have actually seen that movie you're right he was the villain in the mask i Um, haven't seen that movie in years I don't think he was the person in uh, in Sons of the Lambs, I'm afraid. Well, then my memory is just awful. And then, yes, so Butch gets free, and he knocks the gimp out in a, in a very strange slow-motion triumph moment, and he decides he's going to rescue Marcellus, and he picks up, I think, a hammer. You know, good construction. He picks up a baseball bat, you know, good good symbol of American, you know, might and power. Then he picks up a chainsaw, which is just even more ridiculous. And then he picks up a samurai sword hanging in a pawn shop run by hillbillies. I was yelling at the screen at this point because I was like, why are you going to put down a chainsaw for a sword? Use the chainsaw, man. Just use the chainsaw. I mean, I guess the sword worked out for him in the end, but I just feel like Butch keeps making poor life choices and he just gets lucky that they work for him. Yes, he, he, he definitely makes it work. But there is a moment that Zed goes for the gun, and I always think he can make it. He could do it. I, I don't know. I, it was... I kind of... You know, I ended up leaving that scene feeling bad for the gimp. Because <laughs> I don't think he was dead. He was just unconscious, right? Yes, and just so he, he just got left unconscious hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> And I felt bad for him. Like, I really wanted Bruce Willis to stop and at least cut him down. And then he just kept on walking. I I think if he had paid any more attention to him, that wasn't the least he was going to do to him. (laughs) Fair enough. I I always wonder if there's something in the picking up of a Japanese sword. When Christopher Walken comes to him, he says, uh, I was about to do an impression. I'm not going to do a Christopher Walken impression. (laughs) Um, but he says to him that his grandfather was killed in the Battle of Wake Island. And, of course, his uh, father was uh, kept as a POW, I think, in the Vietnam War. 
but there's just something in the symbolism of putting down the baseball bat but picking up a Japanese sword. And I can't decide if it's Tarantino thinking it's cool or wanting there to be something deeper. Probably both. But then again, you listen to Storywonk podcasts as much as I do, so you know that there's this such a thing called death of the author. So if you see that symbolism there, then it's definitely a thing. Yes, so, so, so we read it as canon now. There we go. <laughs> absolutely. If if that's how you interpret it, then, then that's what it means. I think that's something that bothers me sometimes, but I am a little bit arrogant and often think that my way is always the right way and so if I interpret it one way then that is how it's going to be and I can only agree with you (laughs) as a guest (laughs) please feel free to disagree with me Um, because I mean clearly we disagree on on the movie itself because you are such a fan and I am not there yet not to say that I can't ever be there because I, I do appreciate it and I do see merit in it. It's just not my style of movie. But that doesn't mean I, I can't be brought around to be more appreciative. So you said you don't hate the movie. That would be too strong a word. Has it made you interested in watching any other Tarantino films? Can't say that it has. I, I had a feeling that was going to be your answer. And this is probably the best he's done. Kill Bill is, is definitely up there. It's it's more emotionally rewarding. It's more entertaining. But it because it has this style of flick, flicking back and forth between stories, it's got some intellectual reward in it as well. Uh, his latest one, The Hateful Eight, reminded me in Pulp Fiction in in a number of ways. It's about sort of you know the story of lots of different people coming together, but with the exception of one bit in the middle, it's told in a linear fashion. And having watched it, I couldn't help but feel that it would have been more entertaining if I'd had to piece it together as we went. Okay, that's interesting. I think I just watching the previews of The Hateful Eight, it just did not seem like a movie that I would enjoy. And that's why I didn't watch it. I did actually, Tarantino did Django Unchained, didn't he? Yes. I have not seen that. It is a movie that I would be interested in seeing. Though I don't know if I would like it, but it did get so much critical success and also some commercial success that I I would be willing to give it a shot. I would put it on the list, and before you watch it, I will look up the timestamp when to turn it off. There's something oh like half an hour extra on that film that didn't need to be there, in my opinion. Oh dear. Yes. But I don't know. I, 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 I feel like if film. I'm going to watch it, though, Go on. <laughs> if I'm going to watch it, I'm going to do the whole thing. So. Okay. You have been warned. <laughs> Which may be why I never watch it. Mm. This but list I... is growing, and I, I don't know that there are going to be enough years to watch everything that gets added to this list. So. As long as no more movies are released to go on it, you'll be okay. Now, you had written a possible area of discussion the transformative nature of bathrooms. And I wanted to see what you were thinking about that. So this is um, a theme that runs throughout the film. When people go to the bathroom, they return and they find the world is different than they left it. Okay. Particularly this, this applies to John Travolta. He goes to the bathroom in Butch's apartment. He reads his nice little romance (laughs) book. And then he comes out and Bruce Willis shoots him a lot. Right. Um, 
and and that is a great moment because we've had a moment earlier with uh, Bruce and John Travolta squaring off. And clearly, they don't like each other, and you think if that was anyone else, perhaps he might have walked away from this. But later on in the film, John Travolta goes to the bathroom in the diner, and he comes out, and suddenly Jules is in a, a Mexican standoff and is giving a lot of money to some kids who are ripping the place off. Right. We've, got, we've got other examples where the chap in the uh, apartment they go to at the beginning, he's gone to the bathroom, and suddenly everyone he knows in the room is being shot out. And he comes out and tries to uh, wreak bloody vengeance, only to be failed by... What might be an act of God? What might be blanks in a in a gun? I don't think they were blanks because the wall behind them was shot. Unless I was misinterpreting that. Uh, again, there's some interpretation there. The wall behind them is shot, and I've never looked out for it. But apparently, the bullet holes are there when they walk in. Okay, now I really want to go back and rewatch that scene. So it, it's it's there to make you believe they've been shot at, but actually, it's just his gun, and Jules is reading divine intervention into just a silly moment. Okay, I but can it, accept that. The the nature of bathrooms in the movie becomes textual in Jack Rabbit Slims, which looks like one of the greatest diners in the world. I want to go to there. Yes. Is it is it a real place? Do you know, or is it I, just I, made up for the movie? I should look it up, especially if their their milkshakes are only five dollars. <laughs> yeah. One of my notes uh, was five dollar milkshake. This movie is a little bit dated. Yes. Because Vince was just like, that is way too expensive for a milkshake, and I would happily pay $5 for a good milkshake today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but she she goes off to the bathroom, she gets high, and she comes back and she even says, don't you love it when you go to the bathroom and come back to find your food waiting for you? Now, like the film, the theme probably means nothing, but there is definitely this thing in, in most of the stories. There's a point where someone goes off to have a comfort break. And they come back, and the world is fundamentally very different from the way that they left it. You're right. I, I honestly didn't notice that, but there's so much going on in the movie that I think my brain was having a hard time like keeping up with everything. But I, I definitely see that, especially with Vincent, because he also went to the bathroom and came back, and Mia was dying on the floor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Bath- I kind of don't ever want to go to the bathroom again. No. And that, that reminds me of, I think, Stephen King when he uh, released Dreamcatcher. He wrote about how bathrooms are now the scariest places because that's where people found out about themselves in terms of you know, health issues or things going wrong with them. It was now scarier than, than what might be under your bed. And there's something in that in this film as well, I think. Okay. That's, that's a little deeper than I, I went into the movie thinking about. But I think Tarantino likes to make his films deep or at least appear deep i'm not sure which one it actually is yeah that is a a very good point how much is intended and how much is just because he's making a cool looking film that happens to be very much in the real world there's nothing particularly fantastical about the film i i feel like after this conversation i do need to go back and rewatch the movie which is not what i expected to feel after talking about it with you i expected to be more firmly in my stance that this was not a movie I enjoyed. But now I do, really. I want to go back and rewatch it and see, piece it all together from the beginning and see how things affected each other in ways that I didn't pick up to begin with. I I might be about to get into trouble here for adding more movies to your list. Have you seen The Sixth Sense or The Prestige? I have seen both of those. Okay. Okay. 
So the Sixth Sense is linear, the Prestige is non-linear, but both of them have twists at the end that then, when you watch them again, you go, oh, I can see what was happening, I can see what they were working out here. Right. Absolutely. I've seen both of them multiple times. So Yeah, there's, there's something of that in Pulp Fiction where as you watch it, you go, oh, I can see this thing happening, I can see where they're having this going on and, what, and where this mistake might come from. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to give it a few days, maybe a few weeks, but I think I will go back and rewatch it. I will be interested to hear what you think when you've watched it again, whether it's at that point you do just hate it because you've lost five hours to it. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't think I will ever outright hate it. And I do think that I can have enjoyable conversations with other people about it, particularly when it does come to some of the pop cultural references. I feel like I'm going to be walking around saying, say what again, <laughs> like for the rest of my life, even though I could never say that as cool as Samuel L. Jackson says it. Yes. And there is a butcher's line that I, I have heard people say about, you know, what does your name mean? I'm an American. My name doesn't mean anything. I haven't heard anybody say that, but when I heard it, I felt like it was the most true line in the whole movie. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I have three questions about the film for you. Okay. Did you spot the brief Steve Buscemi role during the film? I did not. So do you want to tell me where he was, or do you want me to see if I can find him again on my rewatch? I, I think I'm going to tell you, because it's it's fascinating when you finally spot it. And it took me several watches to realize who it was. When they go to Jack Rabbit Slims, he is the Buddy Holly waiter. No way. He does a very good Buddy Holly, but admittedly, mostly what you need is some curly hair and thick room glasses. Right. I'm going to go find some screenshots of that at the very least to see, because I did not pick up on that at all. Though I think admittedly, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to him because I was still very confused about this whole Mia and Vincent dinner date thing, so... Yes, and, and what happens to me on the date is such a, a great inversion of what you expect. You think there's going to be something about will they, won't they? And then right. suddenly it all gets so much worse than you might expect. Right. I actually, and one of my thoughts was I, I wondered if Vincent was going to be in trouble because of the whole, the rumor that Tony got thrown out of the window for giving her a foot foot massage or something like that and she was really confused that that was what the rumor was about and then she turns around and tells Vincent that the only time he ever touched her was to shake her hand and then when Mia and Vincent shook hands the camera lingered on that and so my first instinct was oh my gosh Marcellus is going to find out that he touched her and Vincent's going to die that's the way my brain works I, I see connections like that, and usually they're completely wrong and insignificant, but that's what I was focusing on there. And there are a lot of hints around Mia that she's actually untouched by any man. When I think when he turns up, she's playing Son of a Preacher Man, and then yes. she plays uh, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, and she spends a lot of time at that table playing with her cherry. Yes, she does. Those are all things I noticed, but I did not put them together. Uh, I remember thinking Son of a Preacher Man was a very odd song to be playing in that scene. Hmm. And and the music is another uh, sort of pop culture reference that this film brought, obviously. Films have have used great music for years, but this was the first time that there was uh, a really good associated soundtrack that everyone picked up. 
I had so many friends who had it and knew all the songs backwards. I don't think I really noticed the music except for where it stood out like that particular song did. But mostly I think that was just because I was confused and trying to figure out what was actually happening. Yeah. So, my second question for you. Uh, on a scale of Cool Like Fonzie to The Guns of the Navarone, how upset are you that she draws a rectangle rather than a square in the air? I have to be honest with you, I didn't even notice that it was a rectangle because I was so annoyed that they actually drew the shape and mm-hmm. you could see it on the screen. It bugged me and I didn't like it. It's it's a really strange choice to, to take you out of the, the depth of the movie at that point and go, oh, I'm watching a movie because they're drawing something on screen at me. Right. And there were only two instances in the movie where something like that happened. It was with her drawing the square rectangle thing Mm -hmm. and then when the wolf shows up and they put the i don't even know what you call it whenever they the chi is it a chiron is that what it is um when it said right he said it takes 30 minutes to get there i'll be there in 10 and then on the bottom of the screen it's nine minutes and 37 seconds later and i just thought i didn't like either one of those instances no, it's definitely a, a very unusual choice. As I say, the film is not fantastical. There's nothing in it that's out of this world. But yet suddenly you have these these little graphics going, oh, okay, they're, they're playing with what I'm watching here for some reason. The, the one other one that I always spot is when they take Marcellus into the back room, the hillbillies with Zed take him in. It suddenly switches to slow motion for a few seconds, and then it goes back to normal. I didn't notice that. It's it's a very unusual choice. Again, as I say, it just takes you out of the fact that you're you're slightly voyeuristic in this room with them, and you go back to, oh yes, I'm watching a movie. I I feel like that if there had been more instances like that, it would have made more sense because it would have been consistent. But just by dropping in two or three, it ended up being distracting, and it it does take you out of that moment. Yes, it, it's it, heavy punctuation on the scene. And my last question for you, what do you think is in the briefcase? I really want to know what's in the briefcase. <laughs> my my first thought, before he opened the briefcase for the the kid in the diner, my first thought was just that it was a lot of money. Because when when they open the case, it glows. And you can see the glow reflected on the face of whoever opens it. So when Vincent opened it in the apartment, it glowed. And at first, you know, then I had no idea what it was. I was thinking it would be really strange if this was some kind of like fantasy type thing in this case, like a glowing potion or something, which wouldn't make (laughs) sense. But then not long after that, we get the first scene with Marcellus and Butch and Marcellus hands Butch an envelope full of money and that money is lit with a red light. So it seems to glow. And so that made the connection for me between the money and what might be in the case. But then at the end, when Jules opens it for the kid in the diner and he says, is that what I think it is? It's beautiful. Then it's clearly not money. Mm -hmm. So that, brought me right back to square one and I have no idea what it is. I don't know what it is that Marcellus would want that badly that kids in an apartment who are eating big kahuna burger for breakfast would have. So I I have no idea. My 
I was having a little bit of a moment like at the end of seven, you know, but instead of what's in the box, what's in the case? And I really want to know. It's a question to which there is no answer. So you can believe whatever it is. And and there is the obvious answer that it, it is some very shiny gold. I, I think Tim Roth was interviewed when it first came out. Um, and he said that it was actually a bunch of baby chicks. <laughs> and everyone likes the chicks so much. So that's good. The, but baby chicks don't glow. Well, perhaps these ones do. Perhaps they are the golden goose. Okay. I, the, I, you know what? I think I might accept that into my head canon. <laughs> the, there is one theory, which, and this does go into the fantastical, that uh, Marcellus Wallace is actually the devil, and it is someone's soul, possibly Brett's soul, because the briefcase number is 666, and... The implication is that Brett and his gang have not stolen it, but they are actually keeping it from Marcellus. That's weird. <laughs> just because it doesn't have anything to do with anything. But I guess it wouldn't if this is just a day in the life. Exactly. It's just a thing they do. And, and yeah, I, I mean, because we, uh, we, we don't know the rules of this universe. We don't know what world they're in. And, and and so that is entirely possible that, that that could be how that world works and and we just don't see it because we're so focused on the perspectives of Jules, Vincent, and Butch. But it just that just seems so weird. Which would be a very Tarantino thing to do. Yes. It's a very outlandish idea. I I quite like it for its absurdity in this film. Absurdity, that is a very good word to describe this film. <laughs> Ridiculous, absurdity, and weird. I think we have them all together. I, I think we do. And I think that's a great time for us to wrap up our conversation about Pulp Fiction. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say or ask or talk about? No, I think we have hit all the major points. And I'm interested to hear what you think when you uh, get around to watching it again, probably later on today. <laughs> later on today. You're so optimistic. Okay. Well... I'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived. If you want to get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at Mandy K. You can email me at Mandy K at popculturallydeprived.com or you can comment on this post on popculturallydeprived.com. Until next time, I'm Mandy K. And I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? <laughs> <laughs>